Thanks for being here. This is our third final evening. We have two more after this. The next one will be on the environment. That should be fun. Any environmentalists in the room? Any? Yeah, maybe. You don't want to put your hand up in the room. I, I get it. I get it. And then the final night will be on uh, the subject of death and how our culture is responding to death. But I, I think I'm going to cut that one short, depending on whether or not you all submit questions uh, for the last night. So depending on questions that come in, and those questions could be from the whole range of these sessions, things that we've looked at, things that we've talked about. We're not going to ask questions like, why is the sky blue? We didn't talk about that, so we're not going to deal with that, right? But it, from all 10 evenings, or I guess nine evenings at that point, if there are things that you need clarified or you'd like discussed, um, submit them. Uh, my email address, I sent out an email today. It should be on there. Um, just submit them through email or even text me. I don't have my number up here tonight because we're not going to have time. I can guarantee that. But either way, uh, feel free to submit questions for the last evening. Okay. Before we start, we're just going to ask the Lord again to help us tonight to be our primary teacher. So let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that the Holy Spirit is the one you said would guide us into all truth and would prepare us for the world that we are called to live in, the world we are called to be missionaries to. And just like the Holy Spirit led the apostles and led them in writing down scripture for us, we know that the Holy Spirit still illuminates our minds, reveals truth to us through your word and teaches us and trains us to be able to live in our time with our culture. So Lord, be our guide tonight. Teach us, guide us, shepherd us and through your word and through history and through all that we can learn. Uh, we just ask that you will be our guide. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Um, recover us, restore us where we need to be restored. Forgive us where we need to be forgiven. And Lord, we just pray that you will provide comfort and encouragement to, tonight to us as well. We know that you win in the end, that you are king over all. We come to this session with that reminder, and we just ask that you will guide us in all truth, in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, I want to start tonight with a, a nugget from C.S. Lewis, which I came across this week from Mere Christianity which is something that we've been talking about almost every week. But this is the truth of it. It hasn't changed from the time Lewis was writing around the time of World War II and where we're at now. But yes, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. Isn't that good news? The rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. <laughs> That's what we're called to do. We're called to just tinker with the way the world wants to be without God. And again, a great campaign of sabotage because the king has landed. He has already come. He's already died and risen again. And he's coming back. He's coming again. And we're supposed to be about the business of being dropped in enemy-occupied territory, the business of sabotaging the enemy and what they're trying to do. That's good news. I think it's almost a humorous way of putting it, but it's true. That's what we're called to do. That's your mission. That's my mission. Well, tonight we are going to begin a conversation on government has to begin with a discussion about the conscience. Okay, so Romans 13, we're going to end up here at some point tonight, but Romans 13, verse 5, Paul says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. We are facing not so much a hard totalitarianism, but what Rod Dreher called a soft totalitarianism. He said that hard totalitarianism depends on terrorizing us into surrendering our free consciences. 
Soft totalitarianism uses fear as well, but mostly it bewitches us with therapeutic promises of entertainment, pleasure, and comfort, including in the phrase of Mustafa Mond, Huxley's great dictator in uh, Brave New World, Christianity without tears. That's what the prosperity gospel is promising as well, isn't it? And it fits right into our culture. Come to Christ, he'll give you wealth and health and fame and whatever you want. After all, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's a Christianity without tears. That's what our soft totalitarian world wants to offer us. But that's not what we have been called to. We have to begin with the subject of the conscience. Because after all, as Christians, we have to remain, this is what integrity is, but we have to remain true to our conscience. Now, we're going to discuss this and clarify this somewhat. But the conscience is at stake when we look at the government and its power. And what we are aiming for as Christians is freedom of conscience. That in itself ought to be cause enough for religious exemption. If my conscience is offended, I am going against Scripture to force someone to go against their conscience, and we're going to notice that. Freedom of conscience is a biblical principle. First of all, we want to notice in Scripture that conscience is the inner awareness of right versus wrong. So we see that in Romans 2, when the Gentiles who have no law, Paul says, by, their na- by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So even atheists know that stealing is wrong. Even atheists know that selfishness looks ugly. Even atheists don't like pride. Where does that come from? They're a law to themselves, Paul says, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts either, here's something we need to know about it, it accuses or it excuses them. It either accuses or excuses the Gentiles who do not know the scriptures or the law of God. Well, that's interesting because that's what sets us apart from the animals. That inherent knowledge of right from wrong. God put that in us. It's an inner witness in us that there is a coming day when there will be ultimate justice and God is going to judge the world and set the world right again. Our conscience is a witness to that. Secondly, our conscience is an aspect of the heart. This is important. This is important. We see this quite often in the Old Testament when narratives are given about our conscience. For instance, when David was in the inside of the cave when Saul came in to use the bathroom and David's men were saying, kill him, kill him. And he cuts off a piece of his robe and it actually says that David's heart struck him. It smote him, it it struck him. Not his mind, but his heart. His conscience crushed him. So it is a matter of the heart, not merely intellectual knowledge. The heart is far more, or the the heart reveals far more than just what we know with our minds. In other words, you can know certain things with your minds and still feel guilty when you do them because of your conscience. What is in the mind doesn't always get to the heart that quickly. The conscience affects our deepest emotions, gives us our sense of right and wrong, Uh, Like any other emotional aspect, it can be wrong at times, but the voice is very powerful. And this is what we come to next, that the conscience is a powerful witness, very powerful witness. It's, It's not easy to silence. In fact, just like Macbeth, isn't it Lady Macbeth, who keeps trying to get the spots out of her hands. She can't wash her hands enough. She's crying out that they that they rid themselves, that they're cleansed, and she can't. Why? The conscience is bearing down on her. I think Edgar Allan Poe, the telltale heart, it was the same thing. He couldn't stop that beating heart under the floorboards of the murdered man, the man that he'd murdered. It just kept beating louder and louder and louder. What was it? The voice of conscience. 
And so Romans 2 again, while their conscience bears witness, John says in 1 John 3 that whenever our heart condemns us, condemn is a very powerful accusatory word, like a prosecutor who is accusing the defendant of something, whether right or wrong, the conscience is a powerful voice. In fact, David says in Psalm 32 about his conscience, what it was doing to him. He says, when I kept silent, when I tried to hide my sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband and committing adultery, when I tried to keep silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He was actually, his, his physical health, his mental health, his emotional health, every aspect of his health was affected by a guilty conscience. It's a powerful witness. Next, the conscience requires guidance. It's not always right. It's possible to not feel condemned when I'm doing wrong if my conscience is misguided. It's also possible to feel condemned when I'm not doing wrong. So the conscience doesn't always reflect actual guilt or innocence. We need the word of God to guide us in that. And that's what Romans 14 is all about as Paul is trying to work this out in the Christian community and then 1 Corinthians 8, he's doing it at a separate church as well. It's a matter of conscience that he's trying to work out and he's trying to teach Christians not to offend another Christian's conscience. They might be weak in a certain area. They might need guidance in a certain area. That's true, but we have to be patient as people's conscience is built up through the word, but it needs guidance. It needs to be guided by scripture. It's not necessarily wrong because we feel it's wrong, not necessarily right because we feel it's right. However, Paul makes very clear in Romans 14 that we should never go against our conscience. If it feels wrong, don't do it. If you can't do it with confidence before the Lord, if you can't do it from a, an, an, an aspect of faith, true confidence before God, don't do it because to you it's sin. Next, there is nothing like freedom of an uncondemning conscience. The end of Psalms, uh, or David's 32nd Psalm that we just uh, referred to, he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Yes, their conscience condemns them all the time, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This is a man who has confessed his sin. He has repented. And while he might be feeling the consequences of that sin under a loving God that doesn't want him to keep committing sin and wants to teach him that sin hurts, yet David now can say the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that ultimately clears our conscience of guilt and accusations. It's only through the death of Jesus and his resurrection that any of us here tonight can be washed of our stains, can be washed of our sin. And the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 10 can say, therefore brothers, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. Notice hearts are being linked here with the conscience. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's actually a very informative um, uh, statement inside its context because what was the Hebrew writer trying to do? The Hebrew writer was trying to get people to bear up under and endure the sufferings of a totalitarian government. Basically, Christians had no rights in the context that the Hebrew writer was writing into. They were suffering a lot and some of them were saying, you know what, probably not worth it. And the writer is actually saying it is worth it. Why? Because you have something no one else in this world truly has, and that is the freedom of a clean conscience. And no one can take that away from you, not even a totalitarian government. So if someone sticks a, head, a gun to your head and says, do this or do that, kill this person, or go against your conscience in whatever way, we'd rather die 
then do that because there's nothing more joyful than having a clear and a clean conscience. Yet, a clear conscience must be maintained and protected. This is Romans 14. I already alluded to this already, but Paul actually says in Romans 14, 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned. Okay, if you have doubts about something, I'm not really sure about this, don't do it. Because uh, the eating is not from faith. In other words, there's no confidence that what I'm doing, in, in this case, it was about eating meat that had been involved in idol sacrifice at some point. Uh, don't do it if there's no confidence before God. For whatever does not pro proceed from faith is sin. That is a principle that every Christian should learn and know. If you cannot do it with a clean conscience, don't. No matter what kind of coercion comes, it's not worth it in the end. A Christian cannot serve God with a guilty conscience. A Christian must walk with a conscience that is informed and clear. That's beautiful. Doesn't mean we're perfect. No, the gospel, every, 1 John 1, the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses, cleanses. It's actually a, an ongoing continuous tense of that cleansing. Say, what, what does that mean? That means that I'm experiencing the cleansing of Jesus' sacrifice at every moment of my life. That I could sin up here tonight. I could say, make a misstatement or I could tell a lie or something. And the blood of Jesus is constantly cleansing my sin. I can confess my sin and it's gone. I can experience the cleansing power of Christ at any time. And that is a beautiful thing. And a Christian must walk in that way. So the questions remain tonight. What model of government provides adequate freedom of conscience? It's very important for a Christian to ask, are there any limits to submitting to a government? Everyone, it seems the culture and even the wider Christian culture is telling us, just submit, obey. After all, Romans 13. We're going to get to that a little while later. It's not the proof text they think it is. How does the church interact or relate to the state? These are questions we need to ask. And at what point should a Christian practice civil disobedience? At what point? How does the conscience play into all of this? I will say this at this point. We need to make a disclaimer. Life under any government, in fact, life in a broken world, is always going to get messy. And relating to the government, it's never a clear-cut thing. I would, I would say as having been uh, part of the directional board of elders here uh, during the lockdowns that there were multiple times through the whole thing where there, there was no clear cut way through. And we're navigating with a little bit of humility and a lot of dependence on God to lead us through all of that, but it gets messy. It does. There's no doubt about that. And history has proven that. Remember Moses? <laughs> Moses goes out to his people, he looks around, he sees all the persecution, and he decides he's going to take a little bit of, he thinks the answer is a little bit of vigilante justice and kills the persecutor, the Egyptian slave master, and hides him in the sand. Didn't work out the way he thought it would, and before long, he's a fugitive. I mean, Joseph faced something very similar in Egypt. I'm going back in time here, but he was falsely accused of things he hadn't done. He ends up in prison. It gets messy. David is the same thing as David's running from Saul. Every, any given moment, there's a decision he has to make. And sometimes he looks back with a little bit of regret. I don't think I made the right decision there. For instance, when he went to Abiathar the priest, he was running away from Saul and he told Abiathar the priest a story of why he was on the run. Didn't say he was on the run. He said he was on a mission. And Abiathar helped him out, gave him a sword, gave him some bread. And Saul came along and had Abiathar and all of the priests killed. Uh, pardon me, it was, uh, pardon me, it wasn't Abiathar. It was, uh, I, I forget which priest it was. Abiathar's the one who, who uh, was delivered. He's the one who escaped with his life. And he comes to David. Here I am making misstatements already. Do you see that? 
Thankful the Lord can forgive, right? Uh, he, he comes and David says to him, after Abiathar tells him what happened, how he killed all the priests, David comes to Abiathar and says, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, and I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. I have occasioned the death. It got messy. David was willing to own that and to say, stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Mordecai and Esther, I mean, you read the book of Esther, you read that story, and you can see how messy it got. And you're not really sure who the hero is in the story at times. There's a lot of trickery going on, a lot of deception happening. It, it gets a little messy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in World War II is a more recent example of this. But uh, he was a, therm, a, a German theologian who tried to unite the German church against Nazi propaganda when Nazi propaganda was actually popular, even inside the church, as some new kind of theology. And they had convinced people because they used the writings of Martin Luther, who in the end of his life was very anti-Semitic or sounded very anti-Semitic, he was very angry, I would say he was anti-Semitic at the end of his life, and Hitler used those to his advantage and turned the German church against the Jews. And Bonhoeffer knew this is not scriptural, this is not right, this is not of God, this is not Christian, this is not the Christian gospel. He even warned people of calling a single individual dear leader, Führer. He called it idolatry. I think it was in 1933, it was on a radio broadcast, warning of this when Hitler had just come to power and the radio went dead, the airwaves went dead. Upon returning to Germany prior to World War II, he joined the Abwehr, the German military intelligence organization, as a, and he worked as a double agent, pastor by day, spy by night, conspirator by night. And at some point, he came to the conclusion, and he came to it theologically, whether you want to agree with it or not, he came to the conclusion that the only way to stop Hitler was to kill him. And he was part of the conspiracy that took place um, right near, close to the end of the war. You can actually watch the Tom Cruise movie, Valkyrie, and watch that story play out. It was depicted in Hollywood. A good movie. Bonhoeffer is not in the movie, but he was a part of this whole conspiracy. He was part of the movement. His name was found on a list of conspirators while he was still in prison. And Hitler, as an, a final act of revenge, knowing that he had lost the war, he had all of these, his enemies, just, it was a revenge killing, but he had them all executed, and Bonhoeffer was executed by hanging April 9th, 1945, just days before the Allies ended the war. Bonhoeffer, by some, is regarded as a martyr, but some question the title due to his involvement in an assassination attempt. Is it ever justified for Christians to be involved in the killing of someone, a world leader? Should Christians be involved in actively stopping an evil regime, even if it means assassination. You see, it gets messy. It gets messy, but I would say over the last two years, there's probably no one that I have seen more of an example from than Bonhoeffer himself, who saw things when they were small and stood up against them, even when no one else would. And those things eventually got out of control and got big. By then it was too late. Well, we are going to go into some models of government through history and just kind of note some of them before we get into how we biblically try to work through what this looks like. Some models throughout history. What is the purpose of government? We need to lay this out pretty quickly. Well, we need it, first of all. Government is necessary. We cannot do away with it. Peter and Andrew Schiff, uh, who were a couple of economists, they wrote and they said, as simple societies grow more complex, which they do over time, there inevitably arises the need for some central authority. So last week's session on the economy leads to this week's session of, we need government to keep us, well, within the bounds, right? 
It's kind of like having a referee. The purpose of government is to provide justice and protection for a free society. This includes setting up and enforcing law and order within society and providing protection from foreign enemies who want to take our goods and our assets. In both cases, that's what government is for. This requires empowerment, and that's risky because we have to empower a government We have to give them authority in order to keep people in bounds, to call a foul foul. And such power has to be limited for the good of society. Lord Acton, a British politician near the end of the 19th century, was the one who famously said that power tends to corrupt. He was not just a politician, he was a student of history. And his observations from history was that power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Well, I would change that just slightly and say great men are always bad men. Why? Because all of us start from a default of sin. We are born sinners. We're born rebellious against God. And our default, even in our flesh, even as Christians, our default is still a proneness towards sin in our selfish appetites. So we need control. That government needs to be limited. We don't need infrastructure bills by government. All they do is waste money. They're pretty good at that. Did you know that at one time, for 40 years, the New York City subways were actually built, paid for, and run, maintained by private enterprise for 40 years. During that 40-year period, The fare did not increase, and they made a profit in the private sector. This is why the two extremes in Marx's idea, (laughs) he wants a big government of socialism to lead to a no government of communism, and both are crazy, insanely absurd, right? We need government, so we're not going to say we don't need it, But we also must limit it, put it within some fences. They must not become our savior. That is the definition of statism, worship of the government. The Schiff boys again say that in our desire to make the pain of economic contraction go away, so in other words, taking risk, we don't want risk anywhere, we want to be comfortable, we have forgotten They say that freedom, a free society, and a free market involves risk. If government is obligated to cure all hardships, then no one is really free in the first place. And that's exactly where we're heading. If government is obligated to cure all hardships, then no one is really free in the first place. Take away the freedom to fail, and you have obliterated, pardon me, the freedom to succeed. All right, very quickly, uh, the Old Testament, we'll just look at this briefly in survey form, but Genesis 1.28, when God blessed them, God blessed the two first created beings, human beings, and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, dominion, notice that word, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There's no one else around, but he has given an embryo form of government. He wants, he has mandated, commissioned Adam and Eve to govern his world, to take care of it, to manage it. Again, we see that in Genesis 2 when he puts Adam and Eve into a garden to tend it and to care for it and so on. It's the same idea. And then he has Adam name all the animals and so on, put them in categories and things like that. It's really an embryo form, but government really comes on the scene in Genesis 9 uh, when Noah comes out of the ark and for the first time we hear uh, God say that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Now, this is not the first time murder has occurred in the world. It's occurred long before now, but this is the first time we hear God laying down a law that would require a consequence, law and order. And uh, if we keep going, we see the Mosaic covenant. So when God 
gives the Ten Commandments and then the following 600 plus stipulations that come with that law, it's interesting to note that the way God or Yahweh gave those commandments was really in the form of what is known as a vassal or suzerainty treaty. So this was the kind of treaty in the old days, the ancient Near East, when a weaker country becomes subject to a stronger country or they become a vassal to a stronger country. So maybe a weaker country, you know, calls out to a stronger king and says, help, please, we're being bullied, we need help. And the stronger king comes along, wipes out their enemies, and they say, thank you very much. Oh, no, 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 no. Now that I have defeated your enemies and I have saved you, and there would be a decree given, and it would start with an introduction. I am so-and-so, king so-and-so, and this is what I have done for you. This is what the treaty looked like. It had a form to it. And out of that came a contract or a covenant That's where we get covenants from, even with marriages and so on. But a covenant would come out of that to say, I'm the king. We are going to set up the society. Now that I've saved you, this society is going to be set up under my rules, my laws that are based on my wisdom. In this case, Yahweh is the king. God is the king, right? And he is the one, he he starts out in Exodus 20, Uh, God spake all these words, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There it is. He's announced himself, who he is. He's announced what he has done. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me and so on. And so a good king announces himself, announces what he has done. And he makes these people a vassal or servants, a servant nation to himself. That's what they did. And for the longest time, Yahweh was king. And under him were judges like Joshua. And then after Joshua, there were a series of judges. And as you read through the book of Judges, you see just this downward spiral of society through it all in which it becomes really apparent something's off, something's really wrong. They keep turning away from the true king of Israel. They keep turning away from the Lord Yahweh. If they can't see him, they can't hear him. And nobody's around to tell them about him. They forget about him and they just go do their own thing. And before long, it becomes very apparent at the end of Judges that in those days, there was no king in Israel, no visible king. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Thus the need for government. Well, that led to Samuel and the people under Samuel saying, give us a king. We want to be like all the other nations. This will solve our problem. Truth is, God had this in mind all along. Through the line of Judah would come the king of kings. Isn't that wonderful? But in so doing, they still were guilty of rejecting the king who they could not see for a human king that they thought they would put all their their hope in, right? Their confidence in a human king. And that kingship would lead to unchecked power. And Samuel, you can read it for yourself. And what is it? First Samuel 8, I believe, where Samuel warns the people about what will happen when a king takes over. He will take everything from them. And that's exactly what happened throughout Israel's history. As well, David was a servant king. He was a king that trusted God and he served under God as the true king. But after him, there were a lot of people uh, that had various, uh, a lot of kings that were power hungry and prideful. And so what did God send? This is interesting. We need this. This is key. What did God send to speak to those power hungry totalitarian kings? He sent prophets. These prophets were not merely there to tell the future. We always think in our modern church age of prophecy as being that which tells the future. That's not what these prophets were there to do. They were there to speak truth to power. That's what they did. They were the conscience of the king. And so the king would do something and the prophet would come along and say, king, you are out of bounds. That is not your God-given sphere of authority. We see that a number of times where this took place. It first took place with the first king, Saul. Saul offered an offering to God before Samuel got there. And he took a role that was not his. He stepped into a sphere that wasn't his. And Samuel 
told him, I will not return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Ultimately, that was later on after he disobeyed the Lord the second time when he didn't kill King Agag and all the people, but he kept the prized ones for himself and the animals and so on. But this was the second strike and it was two strikes, you're out. And Saul, King Saul was out. But Samuel was the one to say, out of bounds, foul. That was his role. You see it again with King Jeroboam. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. And a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord in 1 Kings 13. The man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord, said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. And so he was giving a sign that judgment would come. The king heard, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him. Again, the marks of a totalitarian government and his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. God did give him mercy and so on. But you see again, a king stepping out of the bounds of the sphere that he had been given by God. All right, let's get to the New Testament for a moment and just take a brief little survey at what was going on in the New Testament. Why do we need to know this? Because when Paul wrote Romans 13, he was writing in this time period. The Roman Empire is now governing most of the known world. There's a long history of how that happened. They operated as a republic. You say, well, that sounds good, I think, with a senate and elected officials. Well, not really, because in the Roman world, we've looked at this in weeks gone by, it was not equal rights to every individual. So there were certain people that, well, they're electable, they are rulable, they are the elite class, and the rest were the scum of the earth kind of thing, right? They were not, they, no, they didn't have equal rights. This is not a true republic. However, this is key. Julius Caesar tried, please notice the parallels here. I think it's gonna ring some bells in your, your brain. Julius Caesar tried to turn a temporary appointment of emergency leadership into a permanent position of total control. Sound familiar? Anybody? And thus he was assassinated in 44 BC. Whenever, but this leads to something. Uh, whenever possible, by the way, just, just so we understand, we're going to get to this in a moment, but I just put on pause for a minute. Whenever possible, the Roman Empire, they were good at this because they had taken over so many nations, so many countries, what they would do is they would establish law and order by hiring out law and order to the local authorities. So in the case of Judea, where Jesus was ministering and the apostles started their ministry, Herod the Great was a hired king. Um, there was the high priest, the high priesthood in Jerusalem, and there was the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like a Supreme Court uh, for the Jews as well, those three. And you see all three taking part with the Roman governor, uh, Pilate as well in the crucifixion of Christ. All that is true. However, at the time of Christ, Caesar Augustus, formerly Octavian, is emperor at this point. And after him, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Vespasian, Domitian, and some left the Jews and Christians alone, and some chose not to and persecuted them severely. But in ancient cultures, this is, again, this is key, and this goes back to Julius Caesar for a moment, who was assassinated in 44 BC. In ancient cultures, the rulers claimed that their claim to power was linked to the gods. It was assumed that only a certain few were worthy to rule. This started... Uh, this started when Augustus coerced, he forced the Senate to claim that Julius Caesar, who was killed, had become a god after his assassination. So kind of a pseudo-resurrection story. There's actually a resurrection story about Nero that was going around as well. Uh, people were haunted by Nero, thought he was alive and well still. Um, however, 
that's, that, that's a little off to the side. Uh, Julius Caesar ha- had become a god after his assassination. What did that do for Augustus or Octavian? Well, it meant that he was the son of a god. You see how that works? His right to rule, which is why it is very important when you read the Gospels, just remember that. Caesar Augustus is on the throne at the time, leading the empire, and he believes he's a son of the god. He's the son of Caesar Augustus, who is now or pardon me, Julius Caesar, who is now a god. So, you don't think the Gospels are political? (laughs) Of course they are. Just read Matthew and Mark, and you'll notice what's happening over and over again. What are Matthew and Mark trying to say? I mean, you got the centurion right at the end uh, when Jesus is on the cross, watching the earthquake, watching what's going on, listening to Jesus' words, and saying, truly, this is the Son of God. You have John writing about Thomas who falls at Jesus' feet, seeing him in his resurrection form, saying, my Lord and my God. That is clearly, that is not just a spiritual statement, folks. That is a political statement. And you see it in the historical context in which it stands. You recognize it. That's why, again, people today saying, well, what the government is doing is not necessarily persecution because it's not against the Christian faith. It doesn't matter if it's against the Christian faith or not. If Christians cannot operate in this world according to their conscience as guided by the word of God, then anything that opposes that is persecution. Doesn't matter what the intentions are. It's persecution. Here's one other thing I want to notice is the denarius, which was a Roman coin minted in Gaul with Caesar's image and an inscription claiming his divinity. Coin, image, didn't say in God we trust. It was saying something like in Caesar we trust. So again, the definition of statism. In contrast, Jewish coins had no images. Can you guess why? Because of the second commandment, images were forbidden for Jews, which is why it is incredible that when Jesus said to them, first of all, aware of their malice, he said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why is he calling them hypocrites? Notice what he says next. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Doesn't that seem a little bit hypocritical that these religious leaders who were not just religious, but they were political leaders as well, had a Roman coin with the image of Caesar as Lord on it. They're bowing to the government. And Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription, inscription, notice that. What was the inscription? Claiming that Caesar was divine. Whose is it? And they said, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they went, they left him and went away. Jesus came into the world and preached a new kind of empire. It's called the kingdom of God. And that is the gospel, folks. A king has arrived, just like Lewis said. Maybe in disguise, but a king has arrived. It's good news for the truly oppressed. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember when he, he was in the synagogue just as he was starting his ministry and they read from Isaiah 6. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He read from Isaiah 6. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's good news. It's also political news. It's more than just Jesus died to forgive you of your sins. Yes, that's true. He died to be king of your life, every aspect of your life. Citizens were required to make a sacrifice in honor of the emperor to prove they were a patriot. It was a patriotic act. It was patriotic evidence to provide a sacrifice in honor of the emperor. But Christians could not go against their conscience. Some did, by the way, it's true. Some did, but some refused. It was a mixed bag. To refuse because Jesus was king was a political statement, folks. I hope that's becoming clear. The Christian religion was outlawed. 
Not merely because they were preaching that Jesus died for your sins, because they were preaching that there's another king. And Christians were at times raped, tortured, dismembered, murdered, and often for the entertainment of the masses. How did the church respond? With nonviolence, peaceful resistance, and prayer. And by the time of Constantine, this is interesting, Constantine didn't just come along and convert the nation. You have to understand, by the time Constantine was on the throne in what was it, the fourth century, uh, the nation had already been converted because Christians proved through all of their suffering and persecution that they had something infinitely better than what the Roman culture had. That's important. Well, there are some historical models. I just want to briefly go through these. I'm not going to take too much time on these because we got to get moving here. But historical models through church history. The first one I want you to notice is the Eastern church model, mainly in Russia, but it was also known as Erastianism or, oh, I'm going to murder this word, but Caesaropapism. The idea was with this one that Caesar, the emperor, was also head of the church. In other words, Caesar was the pope. The king was also the priest. Or in a weaker form, he was the preeminent member of the church, but he called the shots. Either way, the state rules the church. The state is a Christian state in the present form of the kingdom of God. That's how it was considered, that we're setting up a kingdom of God where the king is, well, he's the priest. He's the one that calls the shots, not just politically, but spiritually as well. Next, we have the Roman Catholic model, uh, otherwise known as theocracy. Uh, political theocracy, shall we say. The church rules over the state, right? That's the idea. So now the Pope calls the shots. The Pope's the one telling the kings what to do. And after the state church model under Constantine fell, Augustine concluded that the kingdom of God was no longer embodied in the state. It was embodied only in the church. So the church took over. Emperors and princes became vassals, there's the word again, or servants of the church. Here's another form, Constantinianism, Tinianism, pardon me, uh, which was the idea of compromise, okay? So the state favors the church while the church accommodates to the state in order to retain favor. That's wonderful as long as Constantine is in power. But what happens when the next guy is in power? And the next guy actually was pretty brutal. And he brought persecution roaring right back. And it was a brutal persecution. This uh, didn't last, nor could it. It couldn't be maintained in a broken world. Uh, the last one I want to notice is a republic, just for a moment. And notice that while the Roman Empire was a republic of, kind, of a kind, um, we also noticed that... Um, it had different qualities throughout history. It had a very different quality in Rome than it did in the United States and so on when the Declaration of Independence was set up in 1776. Uh, very different type. Um, so we can't, we can't really say that a republic was invented with Greece or with Rome and so on. There were different kinds. But what is it? Well, it's really the idea that the state is the public's interest or citizens willingly constrain their own freedom for the greater good. Citizens elect representatives to establish and inform constitutional laws. The state is ruled by the people, power of the people, right? All right. Another thing I want to notice is results of secularism. What is secularism? It's life without God. We try to eject God. You can have your religion in your private time, in your private life, but don't you dare express it in your public life. Secularism separates the two. Well, that has led us, as a result of the Enlightenment era, when we have science, we don't need God anymore. We have science, trust the science. We don't need to trust God anymore. Resulted in a worldview that no longer included God as a higher authority, and it just had man. We are the higher authority. Well, what do we get? First of all, we get totalitarianism, which is more of an, a characteristic than it is an actual government model. It kind of models the rest that I'm going to point out here, but it controls all aspects of the individual. 
So it's not merely controlling, you know, your public life. It's controlling your soul. It wants your soul. Um, censorship, terrorism, and these days with the soft form of totalitarianism we talked about, it's all about rewards, right? You want to go certain places, you have to have certain things. You want to, be, you want to have certain privileges, you have to jump through certain hoops. That's soft totalitarianism. And you have to think a certain way. If you, if you disagree with statements like love is love, or you can love who you want, well, you're not going to get into certain aspects, certain areas of power. You're not going to have certain jobs. You're going to be shut out. That's soft totalitarianism. It's after your soul. It's saying, you better believe what we believe. You better believe what the establishment believes. Here's the next one, fascism. You probably heard this. All right, this is why it's, it's not cool to call people, you know, fascist, socialist, communist, all in the same sentence because they're kind of the opposite of each other. So we're not going to do that, right? But fascism is a political regime that is driven by national pride, often with racial undertones or overtly racial, right? As in the Nazis, the Nazis were a fascist society seeking to exalt nation over other nations and over other races and suppressing opposition, forcing economic and social order. So it's still totalitarian. Of course, the cultural Marxists made the term fascist to mean something completely different. If you're a white male, uh, the father, cisgender of your home, they say you're a fascist, but that's not the case. Next, we have socialism. And we've looked at these other nights, so I'm just bringing them up again just to note them. Again, this is a system of collective government ownership and administration of production. In other words, the government controls everything. And uh, the distribution of goods. And Marx believed that this would have to be a necessary step towards an actual communist utopia, which is the last one, communism, which is a system where all goods are owned in common and available to all. We just share everything because we're all good. Naturally, we're just instinctively good. It's really our situation, our financial circumstances that have made us bad, right? And communism will require the elimination of private property and the state uh, at this point has supposedly withered away for this to be possible. So Marx goes from big government to no government, which again is absurd. It's not going to work.